Hello and welcome to Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for two years now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea behind the show is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. In the days before the virus, we'd visit our guests in their studios or workshops, but for now we're making do with the internet instead. My guest for the final episode of the current series is Alice Potts. As one writer commented, the material researcher explores the poetry of human fluids. She caused quite a storm when she graduated from the fashion department of the Royal College of Art in 2018 with a collection of crystals grown on various garments, including an extraordinary pair of ballet shoes dyed in red cabbage juice. These crystals were a little different though, as they were created from the user's own sweat. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, the collection was entitled Perspire, and Alice was quickly picked up by some of the fashion world's big beasts, including Nick Knight and Sarah Moa. In 2019, she was part of the Evening Standards Progress 1000, London's most influential people, and her pieces have been shown everywhere, from the Onassis Foundation in Athens to the Philadelphia Museum in the US via the V&A in London. A collection of 20 face masks fashioned from biodegradable plastic, made from food waste sourced from local food markets, butchers and households, as well as a limited edition jewellery collection made in collaboration with MIMCO, is currently on show at the NGV Triennial at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne. Alice, are you there? It's a very bizarre feeling sort of hearing what you've done in the last two years. <laughs> I almost thought I did nothing. <laughs> Well, you, you've done all right. You've done all right. Was it all reasonably accurate? Yeah, no, it was all completely accurate. And I think I did a couple more um, different exhibitions as well in there. But I think you just get so built into your own work that you sort of lose track of all the places you end up exhibiting. But mm. I was slightly proud of myself just then. You should be. We first met, well, shortly after you graduated in 2018 in a cafe in central London. Since then, I know you've spent some time abroad, but where are you now? So I've actually moved back to London, which was obviously very much a COVID-related move. I actually am meant to be in Australia still, which was part of the National Gallery project that I was meant to be doing. So I was meant to move there oh, right. September last year to do sort of like another material development residency but everything sort of changed very, very quickly, obviously, back in March. With crystals or with something else? So it was actually meant to be based on Perspire. So a lot of the work that I've done with my Perspire work has obviously been focused on athletes, but also focused on gender. And um, the National Gallery have been working with some of the women's football teams, which has become like a very new big sport in Australia. And especially the women's team are doing like a very successfully so I was meant to be going to do new experiments that I'd been working on with sweat with some of the women out in Australia which was going to be very exciting. (laughs) So the face masks that are there currently they weren't necessarily supposed to be there in the first instance there's been a change of plan. So it was a complete change of plan all the way back in actually April where obviously I think Australia was one of the most shut down countries compared to a lot of other Mm. places in the world at the time. I think they wanted to not only show the extent of the sort of modern art, but also about how we could actually still work on collaborations through technology. So I think that was like one of the big key factors was how do we keep working from the other side of the world and 
how do we like base them on our different lands so they obviously based all their stuff on Melbourne and I was working on the projects here in London but I'm not gonna lie I very much missed moving to Australia <laughs> yeah it is the promised land so tell me what did you make you've made these 20 face masks how did you go about creating them well I think it all started with the beginning factor of why I ended up choosing to do them because I think we all very much appreciated at the beginning of COVID that I say appreciated but I think there was this very split moment at the beginning of when we all went into lockdown where we all weren't really allowed outside and the world sort of really began to grow like there was all these images about how CO2 emissions had dropped because cars weren't driving around so much it was during spring, so all the flowers were growing and the world was at a really beautiful place. And it brought this mass realisation that actually we really do need to change what we're doing to become more sustainable and to allow the world to grow again. And I think when single-use plastic came back for face shields, we saw sort of mm. all the beginnings of what we wanted to do to sort of save the planet really begin to counteract itself. And that's when I worked with the National Gallery to think about how we could stop using single-use plastic, use these new biomaterials and where they would fit into mass scale or into the current system we have. And it was a really difficult project, but it was quite exciting because it was like a new challenge that we'd never thought. And it was like a very interesting learning curve but i really really enjoyed it i think i'm right in saying that the top section of the mask is 3d printed and then the visor itself is made well from food that you've kind of found in your local area i fully believe in the combination of technology and biomaterials like i think there's mm. a great power in the use of open source so the top of the face shield was created by 3d print uk and they had created an open sourced mass 3D printed top of the face shield. So I actually got in contact with them during my time in London. And we started talking about how we could recycle some of the PPE that was being used to make a filament and use this online open access file to 3D print these recycled top of the face shields. Right. That was like a really interesting challenge in itself, but also this idea of how do we start reusing the materials that we're discarding. And then, yeah, the visor was the bioplastic that I've been sort of almost working on for like four or five years now, but it was now pushing the sort of boundaries of how more the colours so a lot of the pigments come from food and flour waste, especially in London. And it was looking at how actually I think there's a lot of a stigma around sustainability being beige. I know it sounds very, very wrong, but <laughs> I've always said that I will never make anything beige. It's one of my big things about sustainability because I think it sounds so cheesy saying it, but I just think the world is full of so much colour. And I think for me to get people interested in the sort of spectrum of a biomaterial is showing how you can utilise these colours of the world around us and create these pigments to make the colours that were in all 20 of the face shields exhibited. So what colours did you use? I got quite an array because it was over um, spring, summer and autumn. So I feel like I almost got like nearly a whole years of seasons worth, <laughs> if I can say that. Mm. There was a lot of white, reds, pinks, a course again from sort of the Spire project, red cabbages think that's an uh, essential part of my colour scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Acorns from Richmond Park were one of my favourite ones. Lavender was used a lot. 
blackberries when it came to blackberry season and are you cooking this stuff up in your kitchen or do you have a studio or workshop or how does that work so a lot of the stuff i can do in a studio so i was very lucky that when i first moved to london i did have access to a studio but i think of course with lockdown a lot of the places in london are shared spaces so there was a lot of rules that came Mm. in i mean technically a lab is a kitchen That's how the first labs were ever invented, was the use of a kitchen. So I Mm. have very, very forgiving housemates. And I started working a lot at home. I mean, you should have seen my fridge. It was was abundance. (laughs) I thought it was very beautiful, but my housemates begged to differ. (laughs) So full of food waste that you'd picked up from local restaurants and stuff. It was all divided and colour coordinated. (laughs) That was the most disturbing part of it. You've never seen anything to use in colour coordinated food waste. And then what's the process? And you've got this food waste, Alice. How do you turn that into plastic? So a lot of it is actually with different foods, it's different methods. And I think that's what took me the longest period of time for development. So normally, for example, if people are making natural dyes, especially, they can... Um, for red cabbage you boil it for a long period of time Mm. you can drain it and you get quite a strong purple color but there's a lot of things which i actually hadn't realized for example like roses if you boil roses they become a very red color but after like a day go straight brown so it was a very like long learning method of learning what needs to be dehydrated what needs to be hung upside down which sounds very weird so a lot of flowers you can't dehydrate it you hang them upside down and it's the only way to like perfectly dehydrate them without them going brown so of course my ceiling had flowers hanging upside down from them which was another weird factor if i think about it this notion of making face masks it had quite a personal angle to this your brother is a paramedic i believe so my brother is a paramedic he's been working for the ambulance service for five years and i think what was one of the hardest things which i think a lot of people who have family in the nhs realized was hearing about how much someone was struggling but knowing that you couldn't do anything about it and i think one of the biggest things that was very hard at the beginning of covid was that there was a massive lack of ppe And there were so many stories coming from my family and from family friends who work from the NHS of them not being given any PPE, having to go in with like no protection. Some stories were that they were using bin liners. And so I had actually started making just material face masks and donating them. So a lot of the stuff that I did was making face masks, just fabric ones for elderly people's homes, homeless people. We did a lot for the hospital wards. We asked people if they wanted to give any money to donate it to actually my brother's ambulance service to help them fund things. And then that's when I started going into the concept of making fully biodegradable face shields. And I think a lot of that came along because Actually, a lot of people were buying medical grade face masks and face shields. And Mm. that's what was taking Mm. a lot of the supplies away from the NHS and the frontliners. And actually, this was the one time that I'd sort of stepped back and thought that us as everyday consumers don't need, and the same as all sort of plastics, we don't need the same medical grade plastic as an NHS worker does. Because I think plastic is truly an amazing material. Like it's allowed us to develop 
new surgery processes that have allowed us to give people false hearts, new kidneys. It's allowed people to go to the moon and deep sea dive. But that's where I think plastic should stay. I don't think it should be Mm. in the fast chain system. So for me, making the biodegradable face shields was a way of implementing us to think about how we can actually use this biodegradable plastic for everyday purposes because we're not in the same close proximity and actually give and allow a chance for the frontliners to receive the medical grade PPE that they needed. So a face mask for kind of everyday use, but not for medical purposes is what you're fundamentally saying. Yeah, you use the face shields for one interaction with the person. And I think there's only a certain level of if we're still all following the guidelines and staying two metres apart, like minimum, then we just need something for that one day that we're meant to wear it before we bin it will protect us mm. from that far distance. And that's where the whole design method and methodology came on as what would the design look like and how would that be that it would protect someone enough to keep them away from the water particles, but also be able to degrade back into the earth. And is the idea now that people can download the design for this from the web? What happens to these 20 face masks? So this is what I'm sort of like now also working with um, Australia because they're now exhibiting... I think till the end of March, because it was obviously like a commissioned project. But what I'm hoping is that once the exhibition is finished, that I can upload basically open access. So obviously it's a specific 3D printer that needs to 3D print the face shields. But I'm hoping that I can create a platform that would allow people to download that open access top of a face shield, develop a recipe and a basic pigment recipe for people to use or like at least begin experimenting with right? so that people can actually start making at home. And that's why a lot of the stuff I do is basically kitchen based because I want to develop that process that people can actually take the initiative to start making it themselves and know that it's not a scary lab process that people can't access to. There's an element of alchemy to your work, I think. And at the same time, you've been collaborating on a limited edition jewellery collection with Mimco. What have you created for them? So they were one of my sponsors for this project as well. We basically created 20 to 15 piece limited edition jewellery range. So that was made actually out of a very specific seaweed that was used for that one, just because it had to be a lot stronger than just pure food waste which gave the visors the flexibility to be slotted into the top of the face shield so that was a whole new recipe but using the same colored pigments that had been used in the face visor but this was a full collaboration project so i worked alongside the designer called sophie which was a lot of first early in the morning calls in australia and very late evenings (laughs) for me which i don't really recommend It was a very new learning curve to do a full collaboration with someone on the other side of the world and it succeed. Like it was a very amazing process and I really, really enjoyed all of it. And there was a lot of freedom between what I did and what they did as a company as well. And the pieces were beautiful. Sophie, who was the head designer at Mimco, put the jewellery together amazingly. 
And I have to admit, I unfortunately didn't get to see all of them because the day they launched was obviously three in the morning in the UK. And I was hoping that in the morning I could actually see them, but they actually all sold out within like an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I didn't actually wow. ever get the opportunity to see my own jewelry. So by the time you woke up, they'd sold out. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a shame. And there was, um, sorry, the page is out of service, which was, I mean, it was a massive positive, but. I was hoping that I could just download every image so I would have that reference. Yeah. It was my first very big collaboration. Mm. And I think it's always one of those designers' fears is like, how well is it going to do for consumer? And especially in biomaterials, it's one of those things where it's like you want to obviously see the demand by people, but also for them to see the story. And Mimco was an amazing brand to work with. Like they're very focused on sustainability, on empowerment of women, which was like a really nice experience. But they kept everything transparent throughout the whole process. And even though I was so far away, I literally felt like I was there, minus the weather. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Australia kind of covered. Now you're back in London and you have a job. At Somerset House, I believe. Yeah, so um, there's still a very small community of us in sort of biomaterials. Mm. We all sort of know each other and we're all very supportive of each other because biomaterials is relatively new and it's a very hard field to support yourself in. There's one girl who went to Central St. Martin's called Jen Keane, who is an amazing designer and she started a company called modern synthesis Mm. where she asked me to be the biomaterial designer for her new startup and i've absolutely loved it hours are ridiculous very tired but i'm absolutely (laughs) love learning this and we're working in a team of scientists engineers designers and yeah it's absolutely great and you still have time to do your own practice though despite the hours I'm slowly getting very tired. I thought I could sort of do my own. I am still taking on. um, I'm trying to limit it to like two jobs at a time. Fair enough. Biomaterial seems endless. Like I feel like whatever project I do, you just continually learn. And I think that's whether it's a new base for a recipe, um, a new way of designing something, a new collaboration. And I think, I mean, I just love what I do. And I think it's so hard Mm. nowadays to find something which you don't know the answer to. Like, I don't ever go into a project knowing what's going to be created or how things are going to react. And I think that's the most exciting thing about bio is that it's this whole unknown world where you're working with nature and living organisms. And it's about finding that balance between what you put into it and what nature does to create these like amazing designs. One of the byproducts I was quite intrigued by of the pandemic of COVID was that you temporarily had to stop working with sweat i believe why was that so i don't actually remember the point as to which i sort of thought it i think because covid is a water particle and it's transmitted through droplets that i got very very scared especially because i was living with my parents at the beginning that sweat could possibly transmit COVID. And so I refused to sort of work with sweat. It sounds really sad, but it was a really hard year for me in terms of not being able to work with sweat because it's something which is, for the last five years, has been my life. Like, I think every time you get someone new sweat, you end up learning so much about sweat itself and about that individual. But I was so scared of, mostly I was terrified of, crystallizing covid (laughs) wow yeah and i thought that it would crystallize and it would be like an episode basically of jurassic park where 
maybe in a hundred years time someone might break the crystal of covid and you would be responsible for the next pandemic pretty much <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean is that could that happen is that true i mean are, are you able to work with sweat now yeah covid is not transmittable via sweat and i think there was a paper actually posted by imperial to say I still take a lot of precaution. I normally get people to have been tested just because I don't want people to suddenly be sweating because of fever. But also I leave sweat to get sterilised. So actually in part of my process, I do have to sterilise sweat to kill off any bacteria that's come off the skin. It's just taking a lot, a lot more precaution and putting a lot more safety measures into working with it just for the small in-case factor. The question I'm sure you get asked the whole time, but you can't really avoid it, is why did you decide to work with sweat in the first place, Alice? I sort of almost want to say I was having a midlife crisis, but I don't actually know the term. You're much too young. You're irritatingly young. (laughs) I don't know. I think in my head, like I've always been obsessed with geometry and um, my background is actually mathematics and loved origami, anything geometric. And so crystals sort of fell in that line of that pathway of natural geometry. And I mean, I have books and books on how structures are made, how nature grows into all these things and creates like the perfect designs. And I think there was just this one turning point where I saw someone sweating and People don't realise that you can actually see tiny crystals forming every day from when people sweat and they get this like white marks on their top. Like if you look super, super close or look under a microscope, you see these tiny crystals starting to form because it is just the sodiums coming out of your Mm. pores that's making your clothes basically crystallise. So I think I then became fixated on how do you gather sweat and how do you evaporate this and separate all these elements off to grow these bigger crystals that can basically identify a human and yeah an obsession became compulsive and I've had luckily had a very very understanding gym at the time who allowed me (laughs) to ask fellow people working there and people training there if they would voluntarily take canisters and donate on their own time their sweat during their gym sessions so wringing out their clothes at the end of the gym pretty much i made laser cut scrapers so that they could actually personally scrape their own sweat off the skin if they felt they wanted to i mean it all seems very weird but it felt very very normal at the time (laughs) yeah no fair enough i when i started this podcast wasn't necessarily expecting to research on human sweat but i have done some research for this episode which you know it's what you always learn stuff it's fascinating and there are two main sweat glands as far as i'm aware the eccrine which i'm probably mispronouncing and the apocrine glands the former is odorless and it's a gland that you work with i think or do you work with both i just work with the eccrine so i only work with the one gland because the other one actually just that's the one that a lot of people misuse as what sweat is actually because The other one actually only allows out fats and that's fats and proteins, which comes from most hair follicles. So that's why people, when they sweat on their head, it becomes greasy and you get greasy hair because from those glands it is very fat based. But from the eccrine gland is actually just water and salts. And that's mostly from the palm of your hands the middle of your back and from your feet Mm. i actually have a new interesting fact which i posted about oh go on um, go on then which could end up being a new obsession of mine but people actually (laughs) 
<laughs> I was talking to a friend about this earlier today and I was like, I think it might be something that I'm going to be doing over the next 10 years. But on average, a normal person sweats per year 276 gallons of sweat. And that's just a normal person without exercise throughout a year, which technically fills three whole tanks of SUVs. With sweat. Sustainable fuel. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, yeah. like if you have a family of four, that's one car. That's what? 12 full tanks. Sweat actually carries electricity because of the sodium in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you heard it here first. Ten years time, Alice. <laughs> Ten years this time. is it. There's a quote from you where you said, ever since I started doing my project, I've started washing less. Is this still the case? You started working. You became your own project, basically. I fully tell people to stop washing. It's one of my things, like even um, just moving back to the UK and London in a pandemic, I've had to meet people in various different ways, to be honest. One of the things that my new group of friends was um, saying to me was, Alice, like, I think you'd be proud of me. I've started to wash less, which <laughs> I don't recommend people don't wash. I really don't recommend that. <laughs> but um, I think there's this massive OCD about people washing like two or three times a day. And what people don't realize is that most shampoos and conditioners have really harsh chemicals in them. And by overly washing our bodies, our skin is actually becoming weaker and we're becoming more immune to things like infections, diseases, and actually becoming dirtier because our body doesn't produce the oils or anything to keep our skin hydrated or to keep our skin healthy. Sweat is actually full of really good bacteria. And the smells mm. that people say come from sweat is actually just our sweat killing off the bad bacteria, which is living on our skin. Well, I was going to say sweat itself is odourless, right? Yeah, exactly. Sweat is completely mm. odourless and the smell just comes from it killing off bad bacteria on your skin. But if you sweat and don't allow that time for your body to fight off the bad bacteria, you end up just never giving that opportunity to deep clean yourself. And I'm not saying that people should like not wash again at all. But I found myself personally that reducing washing my hair to um, once or twice a week and also just washing myself after, like, actually weigh an hour after exercise. I don't know if I've freaked a lot of people out now. <laughs> and doing maybe once every two, three days personally has made my skin better and has actually made me less, I'm thinking, less susceptible to being ill. Touch wood. There's another quote from you I'm going to throw back at you. Where he said, for a whole year, I went to the gym, covered myself in cling film, got on the Stairmaster fully clothed with several jumpers. Then I'd run to the bathroom, scrape every bit of sweat off and collect it in canisters. Um, you stopped You stopped drinking. You stopped taking prescription drugs. You stopped taking carbohydrates. You stopped eating fats and proteins. To which the question I have is, what was left afterwards? I never actually stopped taking all of those. I might have been misread. Ah. What I did was... I actually started eating carbohydrates and a lot of proteins and a lot of fats. Like I think beforehand, I had a very fashion diet of cigarettes and black coffee before I went into bio and anything which was energy producing. A lot of my research actually came from a coach that I still actually have today called Francesco Zen, who for me is my guru in terms of understanding the body. And 
what was one of the factors for me was how do all these different food groups change our sweat and change our lifestyle? He always taught me that you never better understand a process until you do it on yourself. So me and him worked together on this idea of like what happens to your sweat if you reduce your carbohydrates or increase them, if you increase your salt or decrease your salt. So I'm actually fully believe in salt. I think I have technically a high salt diet because actually I think you need I'm not promoting processed salts or processed salts and foods, mm. but I probably have about 12 grams of pink Himalayan salt a day and I drink it because salt is very, very important for your muscles and for retaining water and for allowing your body not to just pass water through. So there was all these tests I did. The cling film was actually because at the beginning, as you can imagine, I was very embarrassed that I was collecting sweat. <laughs> and so it was like these things. That <laughs> I remember watching these programs when I was younger about how people used to give themselves makeshift saunas and they used to wrap themselves in cling film and then you would sweat more. So I would go in cling film, wear all my gym clothes. I'd be on the Stairmaster with like four hoodies. <laughs> Luckily, I was at a 24-hour gym, so I would go at one in the morning. <laughs> and then I'd be sweating so much and I'd run off and scrape everything away. And then I still remember like um, my first hand in for my master's. And still, I hadn't told anyone I was working with sweat because technically I was meant to be making handbags. I remember we had to hand in a collection of 10 handbags. I'd been working on the sweat for the last year, but then I panicked and I was like, I'm going to fail my master's if I don't produce a handbag. Tried to make a handbag in a night, didn't work out. Actually ended up growing in sweat, ruined the bag, but sweat grew on the bag. (laughs) (laughs) Came into school and it was so bizarre though, because we had 60 students and I remember all of us having to produce like show case our work to everyone and it came to me and I was at the end of the day and I was having an absolute meltdown because everyone had done these beautiful garments handbags and I was at the Royal College of Art like this is like the creme of the creme mm. <laughs> and I came through and I had this little box with this one sweat crystal taking me a whole year to develop like I hadn't gone to school because you can't actually bring bodily secretions in school so I'd been working mostly at home I remember just like opening this box and leaving on the table and I was like, I was just so embarrassed. And I was like, so um, (laughs) I realised that I actually really, really don't like handbags. Did your tutors expecting a handbag get it immediately? I think at first they all looked at me because they were, um, I wouldn't say I was a high achiever, but I was very determined. Like at Royal College of Art, I think in the first year we were meant to do five projects overall throughout the year and I think I ended up doing 13 because I went on to other courses and did projects that I was interested in (laughs) um (laughs) I made a selection of chairs at some point (laughs) nice (laughs) I think biomaterials wasn't really very aware at the time that I'd started doing them and you had people like Suzanne Lee and Neri Oxman who were very new who went to MIT But at Royal Mm. College of Art, no one was really doing bio. So I was actually very ashamed about doing it. It was a very secret thing for me. So I think I was very sceptical of how people would react. And I think, honestly, until I graduated, it was very 50-50 of how people were going to see it. But I remember my head tutor, Zoe, being like, it's okay if you don't like handbags. And then (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) 
And then, yeah, like um, they all really liked it. Um, I think there was still a lot of work that had to be done for it, but I just never really looked back. It was a weird experience. For my final show, when we had to show everyone our collections, I was very, very nervous about how people were going to take it. Because I think a lot of people who had seen my work did, like people do find it beautiful or they do find it gross. I mean, it is sweat, but I don't think sweat is gross. I think people are weird if they find sweat gross. Alice, we talked about how you collected it in the first instance. We have an image that we've made for the reader of you wrapped in cling film with a couple of jumpers down the local gym at one o'clock in the morning. But once you had the sweat... Then how did you actually go about turning that substance into crystals? I mean, you worked with bioengineers at Imperial College, I think. Like we all made used to make crystals at chemistry lessons when you were 11 or whatever with a supersaturated solution in warm water that you cooled down. Was it the same process? It's a very, like, obviously for my own IPE purposes, I don't really talk about the process because I haven't patented it. It's actually very, right, very hard to patent sweat. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Unless I wanted to patent every individual person's sweat, which is a long and very costly process. But it is very similar. And I think that's what took me the most amount of time is that you have to collect a lot of sweat. Like, I think that was like the hardest part for me. And you have to keep it as bacteria free as possible. So I actually didn't work till Imperial till actually more towards the end of my second year, because I think it's very hard to go up to people when you have no background publication Mm. to be like, I've made the sweat crystal. I don't actually technically know how I don't technically still know how it really works which I don't know if I should really say, but I, I've developed a process and somehow it does work in the process of making it. And we've broken it down with chromatography in Imperial, which was the main thing. And we've been able to identify so many factors about individuals and see that these individuals are different. You get all the molecules of their perfumes, the estrogen level. I can tell the level mm. of testosterone. So it's very easy to tell which ones are female, and which ones are male. But you sweat everything out, like everything. Sweating is part of a cleansing process. So anything you eat, anything about your environment, anything internally going on comes out. And I think that's what I almost felt like I was very exposing people. And that's why I always ask for consent of the sweat, the people I use, especially nowadays when you can edit things and you can filter things. This is the purest version of a person. That you can't temper with it. Like this is the mm. person. And I think that level of exposure of someone is a very personal thing. And that's why I try to work very closely with every individual that I work with. Well, I was, I was going to say, because subsequently you worked with, I mean, as you've alluded to, with, with athletes and dancers, and they were asked to sweat into a particular item or have their sweat collected. You graduated with these really beautiful ballet shoes that had crystals growing all over them and i think for the listeners it's important to emphasize these things are big right i mean i remember when i wrote about them a couple of years ago i compared them to the size of conkers is there a notion that you're interested in a second skin almost i think that's what i've always been interested in fashion for but also the implication of biomaterials in fashion i'm very against this new media phase which seems very hypocritical but I feel like we've almost forgotten how amazing our bodies are because I still think our bodies are our greatest technologies. Like technology will never be at the level of how our bodies just function on a daily basis, but also how amazing nature is. And I think for me, the way to get people to be more sustainable 
is by just showing them how amazing their bodies are and how amazing nature is. Because we spend so much time indoors, on our phones, on technology, that we forget just blinking. That's an amazing process that our body is going through or how we type or how we talk is, for me, mind-blowing. But fashion falls for me in that because it's the only thing that we can wear as a second skin without acknowledging mm. it every single day. Like, I think if you wear a watch or wear a piece of technology, you notice it and you take it off when you go for a shower, you take it off at the end of the day because it gets heavy. But fashion is our second skin. And whether people want to believe it or not, it does protect us. It does keep us warm. And we wear it without any knowledge and I think that opportunity to have something so close to our body allows us to stimulate this idea of how do we grow our own second skins instead of just merely just applying them on? How do you learn to access the body on a whole new level and take that to grow a second skin? Mm. Mm. Can, we, can we talk about your background? Because you were born in Leicester, but you spent much of your childhood in Cambridge, your dad was a captain of oil tankers, I think I'm right in saying. What did your mum do? Was there kind of art in the house? There was no art in the house. <laughs> um, so actually, my dad was a captain of oil tanker. So I have so much respect for him. He travelled about 11 and a half months a year, mm. never left the ship, which I could never imagine spending 11 and a half months on a ship permanently and only be on land two weeks of the year. So we travelled a lot as children. So I was born in Leicester, moved to Oakham, lived in Japan for three years, spent some time in Italy, Dubai. And I think when my dad finally stopped being captain, we moved to Cambridge, which actually was a very hard process because I think when you move around a lot as ch children, you, you find it very hard to understand how to connect with the world and so I was lucky that I was a twin so me and him were very close as kids but yeah like Cambridge was the longest place that we'd sort of settled down but my mum again is a woman that I admire deeply in the sense that she worked with life limited children in Addenbrooke's hospital so she worked mm. with a lot of kids with cancer leukemia to some extent, she was a very, very creative woman, but she was always so positive. And I think that attitude that really sort of shone on me is how do you show people the brighter side of things when things are tough? And I think that's a lot of what my mum did was like working with these people who some did survive and she did help learn like and she did use arts as a way to help them deal with processes as well as the siblings of these kids but I think we came from a very strong academic family I was actually meant to be an accountant and I've got families <laughs> of bankers you took these really eclectic a-levels textile chemistry math psychology I mean how did you end up why fashion, ultimately? Because as you say, you looked at accountancy quite seriously for a while. I was going to do accounting. When you're that age, you think, what's going to make me money? I want to get married. I want to have kids. What's going to buy me a home? And then I know it sounds, and I respect anyone who's a teacher out there. I do want to say this before I make this comment. <laughs> I remember applying for a university in accounting and some student in their second year came up to me and was like, if you do maths at university you're either going to be a banker or you're going to be a mass tutor. 
And I just really hated my math tutor. And I was like, I don't want to be that hated by people. <laughs> this idea of being sat at a desk really freaked me out. Let's hope your math tutor isn't listening to this. Oh, I think she won't mind. <laughs> there wasn't a moment then where you went, you had a kind of Damazine moment where you thought, right, fashion is going to be it for me. I'd never bought a Vogue magazine in my life. I'd never heard of Alexander McQueen. I'd never watched a fashion week. I thought Calico was a piece of paper. I'd never used a sewing machine. I'd never picked up a thread or needle. And textiles, I just pleated and folded a lot of paper. Origami was my sort of thing. Did a lot of felting. And I think I was like, oh, it would be cool to not just make pieces of fabric but make a garment. So obviously I applied to five universities with no garments <laughs> and no drawings. <laughs> and I actually made a whole origami dress out of the Financial Times because that was the only paper that I had at the time. And I actually got rejected by every university except Norwich University of Arts, who I think was one of my last interviews. And I went there and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I just am so fascinated by everything. I just know that I'm an extremely hard worker. And Sue, who was the head of the course, just allowed me to go in. It was an extremely tough first two years. Because mm. I think literally when you don't know anything, like I didn't do an art foundation, I didn't have any knowledge of anything. But actually not having any background was my freedom. And I think it's one of those things where it's like, if you don't know the rules, you don't feel restricted. So I had no fashion rules. I didn't know how to make basic anything. And so it allowed me to create my own ways and my own thinking of how to develop it. And that's where my final collection came in of interlocking, where I'd made these whole garments of these mathematically based squares which all got interlocked together and then I was very lucky that I won the David Band Textile Award at Graduate Fashion Week which for my university was a very big deal mm. and yeah got accepted into Royal College of Art. Very good. There's something that you wrote on your Instagram that being a journalist I'm kind of duty bound to ask you about Alice. You wrote that 10 years ago my fate was set out for me being told that I would be in and out of hospital for the rest of my life, I chose to fight and push myself against facts and figures and prove this wrong, which I'm guessing you duly have. I mean, can I ask what that was in reference to? Um, so I was actually, I don't actually talk about it very, very much, but um, I was actually clinically anorexic when I was 17 to quite an extreme point to where I was actually hospitalised for two years. Eating disorders are one of those really quite hard things where it's mm. some people do recover, but I think when you got to the state that I was, I mean, I think I dropped to like 20 kilos at my worst. Like I was, I remember being in hospital and my doctor telling my parents to say goodbye to me and that oh, Lord. if I ever did recover, I would just be relapsing for the rest of my life. And I think when you hear that from a doctor, it's a very challenging thing. So, yeah, I spent actually most of my 17 to 21 year old of my life in and out of hospital where I actually finally changed my life and I've never looked back. It's one of those things which is still very soft to me, 
but it's like I will forever live with damages from my eating disorder but it's also what drives me to find the more better things in life because I think I mean it's also why I haven't actually found COVID very hard I mean try staying in hospital for two years with no no access (laughs) outside (laughs) I've done a pre-COVID lockdown you've had training so is this where the interest in the body resides I wonder I think to some extent it does. I still actually don't really focus so much on my body. And maybe it was a pathway for me to learn to accept my body. But I think actually a lot of it came from my frustration with the world. Because actually, I spent 2010, basically, was the period I sort of spent in hospital, and I had no interaction Mm. with people. And I went from this very 90s phase of how the world worked to almost having to miss some of the biggest social times of my life where I came out and suddenly everyone was wearing makeup. Everyone was on Instagram and Facebook and everything had started really sort of taking off. And people just weren't communicating with each other. And this whole idea that people lived online was a really new experience for me because I didn't have access to a phone I didn't have access to a laptop like I had to learn to entertain myself like it was a very weird experience and I think a lot of what I do is actually me trying to understand the world that I missed and understand Mm. basically my own generation and I think that's Mm. what a lot of my thing comes from and I think also I was teetotal for seven years actually meant that I couldn't rely on things like alcohol or anything else to allow me to have confidence because I think a lot of people do drink to have confidence so it actually pushed me to learn to be who I was and actually learn about people and yeah be comfortable with who I am really how do you I mean I hope you don't mind me asking but how do you get yourself out of a situation like that I think you just have to be sick of it. And I know it sounds really, I'm, I am one of those people who I want more support for people who do have eating disorders. Like I think there's not Mm. enough understanding for people with mental health and there is definitely not enough support with those who have mental health issues. But it's one of those things which I learned from sport, which sounds really stupid, but if you really, really want something, you can get it. And I think your mind is so much stronger than you, than anyone ever really imagines. And I think one of those things where when I was ill is that I know I wanted to get better, but until I really wanted to get better, and I actually wasn't just saying it for the pleasure of the doctors or my family, Mm. you physically can't do it. And I think I'd got to a point where I was like, I'm either not going to make it, this will either be my life the rest of my life, or... I can hope for something better. And I think I still have bad days now and I still have good days. But I think most of what I do and what I do in my practice as well is that I just hope. I just hope that I know there's something else better out there and there's a better fate for the world. And that's what I fight for is that if like I can change one person's opinion or I can push for someone to believe in something else like even in one of the interviews I had right at the beginning of me doing what I did was this lady interviewed me and said that how do I feel that I might not be famous for what I do but I might have given people 
the confidence to do biomaterials or to do something new. And that's like completely okay with me. Like I'm actually really introvert. I don't really like that much attention. (laughs) And I think I just like to know that I helped at least someone. There, There is a bravery in your work, I'd suggest, Alice. I mean, when you graduated from the Royal College of Art, as we've kind of alluded to, there was nothing else like the work you were doing in that show. I mean, it was completely at a tangent to what everybody else was doing. I mean, that took nerve to do that, I would suggest. I think it's just I had got to a point, like I, there was very much an idea of what I'd managed to think I was going to do for my final collection. Like I was going to do origami hand pleated leather bags but I think I just got to a point where I knew I was different I mean I really enjoyed the Royal College of Art but I felt very different to everyone else and I think I've always just learned to accept that and I've learned to accept what I believe in and I think I mean I actually I paid for a lot of my masters (laughs) which is a very hard thing so I think in my head I was like especially when you graduate no one's gonna this is the only opportunity as your masters is to learn who you are like the best fashion Mm. designers and the best designers overall are people who design for who they are gonna be and I think that's what the whole two years at RCA was was actually I think it's very easy to design for what you want your future job to be and to design for what industry wants from you but I think I took the opportunity to learn about what makes me me and like what do I find fascinating and how do I identify who I am in these pieces and that's what I was just so absorbed into it that I just showed the world who I was and it was a very hard experience I'm not gonna lie like I did find it in a very emotional thing because I didn't know how people were gonna react but yeah it went well (laughs) for the listeners could you describe that collection the Perspire collection so the Perspire collection was basically based on I think I ended up working with three ballet dancers from the London Ballet School and it was basically a collection of three different dyed red cabbage shoes one dyed alkaline one dyed acidic and one dyed neutral because obviously depending on the health of the individual and the diet the sweat changes ph as that's why a lot of the stuff i do was done with red cabbage because i wanted an automatic indicator of the person's health as well as the sweat crystallization and so they were pieces that the dancers had worn over six weeks meaning that the same sweat that I then grew back onto the objects was already embedded into the fibres so that when I put the individual sweat onto those items, it would grow throughout the ballet shoes. I think ballet for me was one of those sports where it's so misunderstood. You see a ballet dancer and you think about how graceful it is, but it's one of the hardest, most demanding physical sports I think there is out there. And I think Mm. getting to see a ballet dancer train 10 12 hours a day on their feet and I mean I've never seen so much sweat that I was collecting at that time from them that for me it felt like I could actually show visibly how hard these people worked through the size of the crystals that they'd grown in that time period presumably you don't know or do you know can you control the process and how big these crystals get I think a lot of people have actually asked me to try and control it and I honestly I think I can And you can take the crystals out earlier so not all of the like sodium has formed or you can wax the areas you don't want stuff to grow. But I 
just allow it to do whatever it wants like I think that's part of the process is like and also for me is part of the interest from it and it's also what I make very apparent to my clients (laughs) is that (laughs) whatever we produce we don't know what we're going to produce we're just going to let it happen I think that's one of the things I still don't actually understand and I still really want to work on is how it grows so quickly and like why compared to other even salt or sugar crystals like they take about a week or two to grow the little crystals Mm. like the Mm. environment that i've got mine too takes between like four to ten hours that's insane it's still science that i don't understand but something that when i do have the time and hopefully funding i can go back and actually research properly Mm. i mean something that comes out quite often in your various press clippings is the fact that we all sweat with the exception of former england cricket captain alistair cook and of course Prince Andrew, but it is universal. So why does that matter to you? I think because we sometimes, like, I have this massive thing where I I just hate that. I mean, it's the one th- reason that I really hope I don't see the Queen, is that I talk to everyone exactly the same. It doesn't matter about their gender, their background, or anything. But I think what I find really hard is that we just all judge each other so much. I think a lot of it comes from I was extremely bullied as a child. And I think whatever point in my life, I was judged for the way I looked, for the way I acted. And like none of that was who I am as a person. And I think that's what I really found was like, actually, we're all just human beings. And Mm. I didn't understand why we had to all be divided and we all had to be segregated into all these different groups. And for me, sweating was that way that I could show that actually we are just all human beings. And also I was able to take away these like governmental labels that allowed us to have things like homophobia and people who were a sexist because there was like crystals that were done by women or by gay men who the crystals were just the pure crystals I mean, when you saw these pure versions of these people, none of these labels mattered because this was who they were. That's what I wanted to show was this is who these people are, not just what the government or the world labels them as. So that's very beautiful. On a practical level, was it clear what your career path might be when you were leaving the Royal College? It was my biggest fear. Mm. It's still one of my fears is that I probably can't tell you what I'm going to be doing in a year. Oh, that's a shame because that was my last question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ideally, I would want to know what I'd be doing in a year. But for the first time in my life, I've just been so excited by not knowing the future. And I think it's one of those things where actually why I work in biomaterials is that we all focus so much as what the future is going to look like. And I mean, no one would have predicted that we were going to be in the middle of a pandemic four or five years ago, or even back in February last year. It's one of those things that people like are focused on this idea of robots and flying cars. Mm. That was invented like 40 years ago, that future. That future is history. I just love this idea that, do you know what? Like, why do we have to know? Why can't we just work? Like, we focus so much on the future that we don't focus on the now. And I think that's our biggest issue is that, we look at like how the future is going to be destroyed from CO2, from methane, from plastic. But we focus on all these issues that are going to happen, that we don't live in the now and be like, with all this data, how do we now change the world? And I think that's what I do is that I just want to focus on the now. <laughs> so will the now or the soon to be now 
will that contain sweat? Are you devoted to this material? I'm obsessed with it. I think till I die, I'll be working with sweat. And I think any opportunity I get to work with people, I'm just so fascinated. Like I have a whole library of different things because I still want to find data patterns. So two years ago, when I was in Greece, I worked a lot with people with HIV because obviously sweat doesn't pass HIV, which is a massive misunderstanding between people. And so it's all these different factors where it's like disabilities, does gender, does age, does diabetes, does cancers, like all these things affect crystallization. And so it's like a database, I think, till the day I die, I'll be forever expanding. Well, Alice, I could talk to you all evening, but unfortunately, our time is up. Thank you so much for that. That was a really lovely chat. And um, yeah, good luck with the future or the now, whichever you'd rather. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed, well, I've always enjoyed an opportunity to talk about sweat. <laughs> and to discover more about Alice, go to alicepotts.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters just so you know i've introduced a new tier so now for only two pounds fifty a month you can receive exclusive posts blogs and thoughts from yours truly as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world material matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated ultimately you'll be helping to take the message the importance of materials skill craft and design to a whole new audience so that's it for another series We'll be back in April. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.